Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the final double-digit episode of Ask Abhijit. Great to have you all with me, and uh, as always, lots of lots and lots of questions. I have selected a bunch of these, and let's get right into the questions that you have asked. So, what's question number one? Question number one is by Kevin Shanoi. In the future, when India's GDP grows phenomenally well, our hard power will become massively visible to the world. So will then India be able to take Russia out of the Chinese orbit, the current Dragon Bear Alliance? Will it also result in a more profound relationship between India and Russia, the Tiger Bear Alliance, leading to a world free of American and Chinese influence in each nation's internal matters? In the future, when India becomes more powerful, when India's GDP grows phenomenally well in the next 10-20 years, things will be different. India will be able to do whatever it wants. It's like when a poor person becomes rich, they can uplift whoever they want. They can take along whoever they want, whoever their friends are, whoever their allies are. They can uh, do good things for them. Similarly, when India is in that position of being a prosperous nation, rich nation, powerful nation, it will be able to bring other, along, uh, other other countries along with it. And uh, in case India-Russia relations are still good at the time, and we still have uh, mutual interests and mutual benefits, then certainly India would be able to take Russia along with itself. And I don't see any reason why India and Russia would not have good relations, let's say, 20 years in the future, because India and Russia are actually natural allies Unlike certain other countries that we term as natural allies these days, India and Russia are actually natural allies. We have a common adversary, which is China, which is the common neighbor to both countries, India and Russia. And we have lots of other interests. There are lots of resources that Russia has that India could obtain from Russia. And there's lots of benefits that India can uh, offer to Russia as well. So in the future, maybe 10 or 20 years down the line, we could very much see the emergence of a Tiger Bear Alliance. That's a very interesting name that you have put out, Kevin. So yes, there could be a world. See, currently, if you look at the US, the US, whether people like it or not, the US is a nation, it's an empire that's in decline. The U.S. of the 2020s is like the U.K. of the 20, of the 1930s and 1940s, a nation in slow, gradual decline, a nation that was once all powerful, but which is now showing signs of decline. That was the U.K. in the 1930s and later the 1940s, and that seems to be the situation of the U.S. right now. So, in the future, you may have a Tiger Bear Alliance and a Russia in a world that is maybe less dependent on the US and on China. It all depends on a variety of factors, on what sort of in, uh, leadership India has, what sort of leadership Russia has, what sort of leadership China and the US has, what moves they make, what pieces fall into which place on the glo global geopolitical chessboard and all that. But yes, it is certainly possible. So that's a very interesting question that you have asked and an interesting uh, term that you have coined, Kevin, the Tiger Bear Alliance. Okay, Rama Lakshmi says, recently Russia tested its Sarmat, Satan II ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile. If such ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads are fired hypothetically at Russia, can the defense systems such as the S-400 or the Patriot intercept them? And if they did such high yield missiles, what could would be the impact in air as the warhead would 
explode and do you think radiation would spread okay let's first take the second part of the question let's say you have a nuclear missile that's incoming and you take it out with an anti missile missile let's say with the s400 system or some other missile defense system india has its own indigenous uh, anti missile systems like the prithvi air defense system and so on so it's like shooting a bullet with a bullet that's what it's like so let's say you have an inter- incoming intercontinental ballistic missile what a, what an icbm does or any ballistic missile does is that it first goes out of the earth's atmosphere goes on a ballistic trajectory which is essentially a projectile motion a parabolic path and then it reenters the atmosphere and then it comes towards the destination whatever the target is <clears throat> so that's what a ballistic missile is like so when it reenters the atmosphere that's when you can intercept it when you know where it's uh, heading towards it depends on what sort of range your missiles de- your missile defense system has what is the readiness and so on and so forth but let's say you take one of these incoming missiles out you destroy it now this incoming missile is a nuclear missile let's say it has a nuclear warhead so when you destroy the incoming nuclear missile will there be a nuclear explosion no most likely it won't there won't be a nuclear explosion there is something called a fuse on a nuclear warhead and it typically detonates and the nuclear warhead on a missile incoming ballistic missile typically detonates at a certain altitude or on impact and there are certain characteristics of the impact that would trigger a detonation most probably it would be something that is a proximity kind of thing maybe 100 meters above when the altitude is is 100 meters or maybe half a kilometer or whatever whatever you programmed into it so that's what it takes for a nuclear explosion to happen and for the warheads nuclear device to be triggered most likely when you take out a nuclear missile which is incoming in mid air you would typically do it, it at an altitude of 50 kilometers or 20 kilometers if you are or something like that something like that so in that case most likely there will not be a nuclear explosion it will just be destroyed and the warhead will fall somewhere or maybe it will break open and then and the materials inside may may spill out into the atmosphere so that is the most likely scenario maybe maybe there even may be a nuclear blast in case it is programmed that way in which case the nuclear explosion will take several kilometers up in the air and it will not have a significant impact on the target site let's say you have a nuclear blast 10 kilometers in the air or 20 kilometers high up in the air there will be almost no fall out on the ground there will be a cloud of radioactive debris and all that it will dissipate across the atmosphere and it will lead to well the kind of situation you had when the tsar bomba was detonated so the russians they detonated this enormous nuclear bomb the tsar bomba i think it was in the 50s or 60s most likely somewhere around that time and this 50 megaton nuclear warhead was detonated maybe a few kilometers in the air i'm not sure what height it was at but maybe let's say let's say hypothetically 10 kilometers or 5 kilometers whatever it was so it exploded in mid air and then it it uh, created a, ma- a massive mushroom cloud but the fallout the radioactive fallout was very less on the ground it was negligible of course there was radioactive fallout in the atmosphere but that's a different story so it if a nuclear warhead explodes in mid air a few kilometers above the ground it will not have much of an effect on the target site that's what happens so uh, now about the sarmath icbm that's a 
super heavy icbm it's a double it's it has at least two stages the first stage i believe is a solid solid fueled stage and the the second stage or whatever it is or third stage whatever it is is a liquid fueled stage and it has a very very long range it can essentially hit any target in the world uh so that's what it is now can a defense system such as the s400 or the patriot system intercept it the thing about the sarmat is is that it is an enormous missile it's a super heavy missile it has a very long range and it is a mirv missile multiple independent reentry vehicles which means that a single missile would carry maybe 10 or 12 uh thermonuclear warheads and each of these warheads would be pro- will be programmed to hit a dif- different destination a different target so the missile goes up into the atmosphere it goes out of the atmosphere goes into 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 space outer space then it reenters the atmosphere and while reentering it it's uh, uh it releases the 10 12 15 whatever warheads it is carrying and each of these warheads goes into a different goes to a different destination and sometimes you may even have a maneuverable maneuvering uh gliding warhead that would go to a destination but it would go through a zigzag path so it's very hard to intercept right so that is the advantage of having mirv technology multiple independent reentry vehicles or i think that's what the acronym stands for so when you have that sort of a thing it's really hard to intercept that you will essentially have to either destroy the incoming missile very high in the atmosphere before it releases its uh, warheads or you would have to go after each warhead independently let's say it releases 15 warheads or 12 warheads each of which is a thermonuclear weapon and each of these guys goes in different directions it may be each of these guys may be maneuvering in a certain way it makes it really really hard to intercept really hard now the s400 system may possibly able be able to take out uh these mirv warheads possibly i think it's able to uh, target multiple incoming uh, uh, bogies at the same time so it is certainly possible that the s400 may be able to take it out there's a newer more advanced version of the of the system called the s500 there's even talk about a s550 so these are progressively better iterations of the system the previous one was called the s300 so uh, there's always a likelihood that even the best system may miss some of the incoming missiles or warheads because none of these systems is guaranteed to be 100% accurate it has a small error margin and uh, the s400 is as of today most likely the best available system the patriot system is not quite as good neither is the israeli iron dome system so i think if you want to if you are a betting person if you would like to bet then your bets should be on the s400 system because i think the s400 system has the best possible chance of stopping an incoming uh, nuclear attack even if it is an mirv system i believe it's able to take out it's able to deal with mirv warheads as well so if you want to bet you should bet on the s400 this is by vishal what do you think about dictators like mao zedong joseph stalin kim il sung 
were the good leaders for their countries? Interesting question. So uh, these are dictators, like you say, autocrats, dictators, iron men, etc. That's what you would call them. I would not categorize Kim Il-sung in the same category or the same bracket as Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin. Kim Il-sung is a different kind of dictator. So Joseph Stalin was the strongman of the USSR, the most powerful dictator they had and the one who had the most massive impact impact on the country, on the geopolitics of Europe and of Eurasia. Yeah. Mao Zedong was the guy who essentially brought the Chinese Communist Party to power. And he's the guy, he can be considered to be the founding father of the modern nation of communist China. Right? So these guys, one could put them in the same bracket or same category. Kim Il-sung was certainly the dictator of North Korea, the, the founding member of, founding father of the, of the Kim dynasty. His, son, his son's name was Kim Jong-il and his grandson's name is Kim Jong-un, who is the current dictator of North Korea. Well, Kim Il-sung derived his power from outside forces. He was essentially a puppet of, of China and the USSR, indirectly USSR, indirectly China. So that's what he was. Without the support, the external support of a massive player like China, Kim Il-sung had no legitimacy and no power. His entire power was derived from outside support. So he was essentially a puppet. That's what he was. Of course, he was all-powerful within his country. But if he did not obey the orders of his overlord, then he was going to be gone in a minute. That's how it was. So Kim Il-sung derived his power from outside support. Mao Zedong had his own power base in China and Joseph Stalin also had his own power base in the USSR. So these two guys were different. Now all three were dictators, all three were despots, right? As we know, Joseph Stalin did all kinds of terrible, terrible atrocities in um, his country, outside his country as well. I mean, if you think of, if you, if you talk about the the Katyn massacre of the Second World War, which was blamed on the Nazis, but it was then revealed that the USSR did that. It was done on the orders of Joseph Stalin. I think it was Vasily Blokhin, the world's most infamous executioner who carried it out. And uh, we know about the terrible famine in the Ukraine, the Holodomor, and all kinds of terrible purges that he carried out. And I don't know how many millions of people either directly or indirectly died at the on the orders or at the hands of Joseph Stalin. Uh, there's also his commissars like Yezhov and uh, what was the guy's name? There was this guy called uh, Yezhov who was his head of the NKVD, I think, or the head of the secret, uh, secret police. And before Yezhov, there was another guy. They were all eliminated. So it was a tyrannical rule. right? That's, that's the kind of rule that Joseph Stalin had in the USSR. Very, very brutal rule. But of course, he industrialized the USSR and he transformed the country through brute force and through a variety of methods into a genuine superpower. One of the two superpowers in the world. So on the one hand, his rule was brutal, one could say barbaric, inhuman, and so on and so forth. He impoverished tens of millions of people in his country, maybe hundreds of millions of billions of people in his country. And he, well, his rule 
he mismanaged a lot of stuff and it cost a lot of lives uh, too many lives right and the same thing can be said about mao zedong he his rule was also very brutal i mean he may have ended up killing um, maybe almost 100 million of his own country people through a variety of terribly bungled plans and all kinds of things right the the famines that he created the artificial famines he caused the so called great leap forward the so called cultural revolution it was these were all enormous massive disasters for china tens of millions of people died in these ridiculous schemes that he that he created mao zedong so yeah i mean the human cost was terrible and yet the policies he followed they were the platform upon which then shopping then shopping essentially took uh, took the country forward so what he the, the what he created for deng shopping was this this uh, country wide one party rule which deng shopping was able to leverage in order to take china forward and that's why china is like well the most powerful nation and the most prosperous nation in eurasia today so it was all because of deng shopping but deng shopping would not have been able to do do what he did had it not been for the state machinery that mao zedong been built so these guys stalin mao zedong they left behind mixed legacies they killed way too many people they caused the deaths of way too many people tens of millions maybe over 100 million people they caused incredible amounts of misery right and suffering unnecessary suffering but they also eventually led to the rise of their countries in 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 an aggregate fashion so it's a mixed legacy obviously when one would not wish such leaders on any other country one certainly would not wish that sort of a leader in any civilized country right so yeah that's what i can say about these three individuals kim kim il sung was nothing compared to these two guys mao zedong and joseph stalin ayan says what are the views of science on yoga and ayurveda yoga and ayurveda are very very ancient systems that go back several thousand years right indian systems that emerged out of ancient india you, if you if you you find the earliest evidence of yoga in statuettes from the saraswati sindhu phase of indian civilization that goes back 5 6000 years before today so that's how old yoga is and most likely ayurveda also would be that old so these are very ancient systems that they well predate any other system of of healthcare uh the chinese like to tout their traditional chinese medicine well the indian ayurveda and yoga go way before the chinese medicine they they predate china itself if you look at china china if you look at the history of chinese civilization the attested the recorded history of chinese civilization goes back about 3 3 1/2 thousand years yeah so yoga and ayurveda predate china itself as a civilization uh now what the chinese have been able to do is that they have been able to bring traditional chinese medicine into the modern age there are all kinds of herbs and remedies that are available in ancient chinese medicine and they have been able to what they've done is that they have researched these herbs and remedies through 
the mean through the through the using the methods of modern science 20th century science to even 21st century science and one of the most important anti malarial drugs artemisin i think it's called i'm not sure what the exact name is the commercial name of that is falsigo i think that was discovered through research done on ancient chinese herbal remedies for malaria right so there's a great deal of potential in ancient chinese medicine well i would say there's a even more potential in ayurveda if it is properly researched and uh, the various herbs and uh, other preparations and treatments are investigated scientifically i mean what are the active compounds that are at work in various substances on various herbs like brahmi for instance brahmi is well known to increase your your um, mental acuity your alertness maybe even the level of your intelligence and so on but nobody has bothered to do any research on brahmi right brahmi and there are so many other herbal remedies from ayurveda and so on but in recent times people have indeed started doing some research into ayurveda and let me uh, show you an example of that so let me share my screen and here we are this is once it comes on screen this is a, a research paper that has been published in uh, nature as you can see nature scientific reports this is from 2015 genome wide analysis correlates ayurveda prakriti so let me just read out the abstract for you the practice of ayurveda the traditional medicine of india is based on the concept of three major constitutional types vata pitta and kapha defined as prakriti to the best of our knowledge no study has convincingly correlated genomic variations with the classification of prakriti in the present study we performed genome wide snp single nucleotide polymorphism analysis of 262 well classified male individuals belonging to three prakritis and so on and so forth so uh, we found 52 snps were significantly different between prakritis without any confounding effect of stratification after 10 raised to 6 permutations principal component analysis of these snps classified 260 262 individuals into their respective groups vata pitta and kapha irrespective of their ancestry which represent its power in categorization we further validated our finding with 297 indian population samples with known ancestry subsequently we found that pgm1 correlates with pheno phenotype of pitta as described in the ancient text of charaka samhita suggesting that the phenotypic classification of india's class uh, traditional medicine has a genetic basis and its prakriti based practice in vogue for many centuries especially actually millennia resonates with personalized medicine so this is where you find that genetic gen genome wide analysis correlates ayurveda prakriti there's a more recent article from springer uh from 2018 which also talks about this translational potential of ayurveda prakriti concepts in the area of personalized medicine so this concludes by saying that the east welcomes the west to personalized medicine and it also kind of cor cor corroborates Uh, the ayurvedic uh, classification of individuals into various prakritis the doshas vata pitta and kapha so as you can see there is indeed 
a genuine scientific basis to Ayurveda. You would also find the same thing in yoga. I mean, th- there have been some studies done on about, on the beneficial effects of yoga on on the human body, the human mind, meditation, and so on and so forth. And they have they have certainly found. I don't have the uh, result here because I've not looked it up right now. But check it out. Google it, search for it, and you will find studies that are done and that do demonstrate that yoga yoga too has beneficial effects on on human well-being. So there are indeed, in recent times, scientific studies that are now being carried out slowly on Ayurveda and yoga. And these studies do confirm that both of these systems, yoga and Ayurveda, have beneficial effects on human well-being. So that's what I can say about this in brief. Okay. Parva Shiva says, Namaste, my question to you is about Hindu Kush mountain. Was it known by another name before it was known as Hindu Kush? I read that it is named after Lord Ram's son Kush, but Afghans mainly refer to it as killer of Hindus as per the language. Why would a mountain river or anything which was part of our territory be named like that? It's a disgrace. My partner who is an Afghan, whenever I told him that Afghans, especially except for Hazaras and Uzbeks, have Indian ancestry, he got severely offended and denied it. They live here, I mean in India, but their hatred towards India is unbelievable and behave as if India owes them some favor instead of being grateful. Why do we, the government, even allow these people to live here? (laughs) Okay, okay, there's a whole lot to unpack here. The Hindu Kush mountain, the name Hindu Kush means the killer of Hindus in Persian, I believe. That is undeniable. The Hindu Kush mountain means the killer of Hindus. It's not a single mountain, it's a mountain range. And it's known as the killer of Hindus. I think the first person to call it Hindu Kush or the killer of Hindus in writing, in the in the written record was the North African traveler Ibn Battuta. He was an Islamic traveler who traveled, who traveled to India and various other places. And he is the guy who called this mountain, this mountain range, the Hindu Kush mountain range. And why was it called the Hindu Kush mountain range? Because when the Turks invaded and occupied India, they carried back tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Indians, Indian slaves, mainly women and children, as slaves out of India into Turkestan, Central Asia, to se- in, into into the into Arabia also possibly to sell them as slaves for various purposes. Hmm? And Indians were accustomed to the warm climate of India and these mountains were frightfully cold and incredible numbers of Indians died while being forcibly made to cross these mountains and go into Central Asia. So, so many Indians died in in this mountain range that it came to be known as the Hindu Kush, the killer of Hindus. When you say Indians, you mean Hindus. Only Hindus were carried out of India as, as slaves, women and children mostly. Also some men, which was a well, that's how it goes. And I'm sure that if today historians and archaeologists, especially archaeologists, were to go to the mountain range, maybe do some digging or something, they would find frozen preserved bodies of ancient Indians there. Women and children mostly. So that is why it is called Hindu Kush. What is the original name of this mountain range? It was known in civilized days when Afghanistan 
was Gandhar. It was part of the Indian subcontinent and part of Indian civilization. In those days, this mountain range was known as the Upari Shena mountain range. Upari Shena, the place where eagles also cannot fly. It is beyond the reach of eagles. Shena in Sanskrit means eagle. It was also known as Upari Shena in the old Persian language. Because Persian, the old Persian language was more or less the same as Sanskrit. It was a descendant, a slightly corrupted version of Sanskrit. And the mountain range name was the same in the old Persian. Uparishyen. Where uh, the, the place that is beyond the reach of eagles. And it's interesting that the word Shyen of Sanskrit, the Sanskrit word Shyen got corrupted into the Persian way, word Shaheen. So Shaheen is a Persian word it, it uh, today it denotes uh, various kinds of raptors, I think hawks, but it originally meant eagles, Shiena. So this mountain range was called the Upari Shiena mountain range. That was the true name, the original name. Now it's known as the Hindu Kush because of the events of the past 1000 years. Now the Afghans, uh, well, the Afghans will never accept that they, their ancestors were Indians or Hindus. Uh, the majority population in, in Afghanistan, in Gandhar, is the Pashtun people, are the Pashtun people. You also have Uzbeks and, and Turkmens and Hazaras and uh, Tajiks in Afghanistan because of the event of the past 1000 years. Lots of Turks came into Afghanistan, into Gandhar and settled down there. So you have a multi multitude of ethnic groups there. The major ethnic group is the Pashtuns. They are the descendants of ancient Indians. Genetic analysis shows that, of course, there will be intermingling of some kind with various other ethnic groups that have introgressed into Gandhar over time. But if you tell Afghans, especially Pashtuns, that your ancestors were Indians, they were Hindus or Buddhists, they will deny it and they will get offended. That's the that's the overall uh, attitude they have. They 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 like to claim that they are the descendants of of, of ancient Jews, apparently. Well, uh, not a single genetic analysis have, has, has been able to dredge out even in an iota of, of Jewish ancestry among the Pashtuns. The Pashtuns are essentially an outgrowth of the overall northern and western Indian, Indian population. Genetically, they are more or less the same. And uh, so that's what the history is. Now they get, they get offended and you're saying that your partner is an Afghan. He lives in India but hates India. Well, why is it like this? It's because of what has been what they have been taught over the past 1000 years. They have been taught to hate their ancestry, their culture, their original culture and to see themselves as, as something else. So that's just how it is, right? So why does the government even allow these people to live here? Well, I do not speak on behalf of the government, so I don't know. One should not allow people to live in India, especially the kind of people who hate India. I mean, that's that's. Uh, I think that's just plain logic. But well, that's just how it is. That's where we are today. Things will change slowly. All right. Okay, next question. Christophe Frischkorn says, what impact would the election of Marine Le Pen have on the EU, NATO, and the war in Ukraine? So let's understand who Madame Marine Le Pen is. She is a, a far-right political leader in France. I don't remember the name of her political party. It was her 
the political party that she heads was founded her by her papa, Monsieur Jean-Marie Le Pen. So when I was a little kid, Monsieur Jean-Marie Le Pen was the head of the uh, that political party. He was a extreme right winger, far right nationalist, and I believe that in the early two thousands he. Uh, he he i think he stood for, uh, for for the post of president of france on a number of occasions four or five times in the early 2000s he made a very serious bid and uh, and he came quite close apparently right so that is uh, her daddy monsieur jean marie le pen and eventually her father was expelled from the party by his daughter marine le pen for whatever reason so it was like a internal coup in the <laughs> dynastic coup within the party and now she is the head of the party the president of the party i think or whatever the position is so that in short is who marine le pen is now she is a hard right winger in the context of european politics french politics she is a hard nationalist uh she is not a front runner for for winning the election most likely monsieur macron will win but in case madame marine le pen wins this election then politics will change uh she has expressed uh her intention of taking france out of nato i mean i'm not sure if she even if she gets elected she'll succeed in doing that but that's what she wants she wants to bring france out of nato because she sees with i think with good reason the position of france within nato as being that of a us vassal state which actually it is right any country that is part of nato is subsidiary to the us and under the direct military orders of the united states so france is the one of the members of nato i believe that france is maybe the only member of nato it is not maybe it is definitely the only member of nato that has an independent foreign policy and there is a cause of severe friction between france and the uk and the united states the us uh, Americans love to denigrate France as a nation of uh, what what do they call them uh, this is not my words they call them surrender monkeys <laughs> like you guys surrendered to the nazis and we had to bail you out in the second world war that's the kind of uh, that's that's what the french are told and, and so on and so forth the, so the americans kind of uh, enjoy taunting the french about this and uh, so so the french feel disrespected the french don't like to speak english even if they if they even if they know english they will not want to speak english you go to paris people will refuse many people will refuse to speak in english to you and so on so marine le pen wants to bring france out of nato if she wins the election she may try to do that i'm not sure how successful she would be the us would certainly not not like that the us and france have had lots of frictions in 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 the past decades uh, the most recent example is the is the aborted france australia nuclear uh, submarine deal not nuclear submarine deal but submarine deal the french had this contract with the australians the french would uh, sell the australians a number of scorpion submarines it was a signed deal a done deal and suddenly the australians bailed out of it and they chose to acquire nuclear even more expensive nuclear submarines from the us which they will get in the 2030s or 2040s i think so they ditched a deal they had signed the americans forced them to do that and the french were left holding nothing so the french were really upset about this they still are and they don't like being under the overlordship of the us 
So Marine Le Pen, if she gets elected, the first thing she would do or one of the major goals she would have as president of France would be to bring France out of NATO. Uh, maybe not out of the EU. The, so the NATO is a bunch of US fossil states. So is the EU. So is the European Union. The European Union is also a softer version of NATO. It's also a bunch of <laughs> American vassal states. So I would say that her first objective would be to, to bring France out of NATO. I don't see any major effect on the war on Ukraine, but NATO would be shaken up if she comes to power. So that's the major impact her hypothetical election to the presidency would have on the geopolitics in Western Europe. Okay, why does the Polaris star not move? That's a good question. So, we have to understand that our planet, okay, I don't have a sphere, but let's consider this to be a sphere. So, our planet, it moves around a certain axis. It, it rotates around its axis of rotation. And the axis is like this, and the planet rotates like that, around that axis, right? So, if you have a star in any direction, it's going to go around you at night. It will start in the east or west or wherever. And it will end up in the opposite direction over the course of a few hours because of the rotation of the planet. And we know that the planet rotates once in roughly 24 hours, which is why we have a 24-hour day-night cycle. Now, if you have a star which is aligned with the axis of rotation of the planet, then no matter how much the, the planet rotates, the star will appear to be in the same position. So that's the position of Polaris. It is the one star that is almost, almost completely aligned in line with the axis of rotation of our planet. And that's why it does not appear to move, even though the other stars, they move around. Now, the thing is this, uh, there is a phenomenon called the precession of the equinoxes, which means that the axis of rotation of the planet itself moves, it precesses. And I think the cycle is, how many years does it take? 23,000 23, years? Uh, it's a certain, I think it's 23,000 years. Look it up. I may be wrong. I don't remember exactly what it is. But once in that cycle, I mean, so the axis of rotation of the planet also changes very slowly, which is why every few thousand years you have a new pole star. So Polaris in a few thousand years will no longer be the pole star. There will be some other star. For instance, the star Vega, in, in, uh, known as Abhijit in Sanskrit, was the pole star about 10 or 11,000 years ago. And Polaris was not the pole star at that time. And somehow, we seem to have recorded the fact that this star, Vega, Abhijit, was the pole star a whole lot of time ago. So that's how old ancient, I mean, Indian Indian recorded history is. So, so to come back to your question, that is why Polaris does not move. It does not appear to move. If you measure it very accurately, there'll be a slight, very slight wobble because it's not completely and perfectly aligned with the axis of rotation of our planet. Ashok says, "Why? What is the reason for a planet's orbital tilt?" So I said that our planet. Its axis of rotation precesses once in 23,000 or so years. So it means that our, our planet goes around the sun. Let's say this is the sun, our planet, and all the, all the planets go 
around the sun in imperfect orbits, not circles, but squash circles, ellipses, right? And if you look at the axis of rotation of the planet, it will not be at 90 degrees. It will be slightly tilted. Most planets have a slight tilt compared to the uh, plane of the solar system. So why is it so? When the planets formed, their axis of rotation would have been 90 degrees. Uh, at, at a 90 degree angle with the plane of uh, of the solar system. So why is there a tilt in most planets now? There are certain planets that have a major tilt. And the reason for that is impacts, ancient impacts. So what most likely happened is that in the very distant past, maybe two, three, almost maybe three and a half or so billion years before today, our planet was hit by an ancient proto-planet in a massive collision. And that's how it is believed that the moon was formed, by this ejected material that went into orbit around the Earth and eventually coalesced into a satellite, which we now know as the moon. So when you have a collision between two planets, the axis of rotation gets wobbly. It gets wobbled up. And that's why it you're left, behind, you're left with a certain tilt. So if it's a major collision, your axis of rotation may get turned around completely upside down. Like I think Uranus is it or Neptune. One of these two guys has a very strangely uh, inclined axis of rotation. In the case of the Earth, it is slightly inclined. So it's because of ancient collisions that this incline happened. This tilt happened. Osmita says the epic of Ramayan is found across Southeast Asia. And the local variations are very popular. However, compared to this, the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita are not as popular. What could be the reasons? This is a very interesting question. So, uh, yes, uh, like Asmita says, there are a variety of versions of the Ramayana found all across Southeast Asia. In Burma, in Thailand, in Cambodia, in Laos, in Vietnam in indonesia malaysia and so on and so forth everywhere there is there are in bali so there are various local variations of the ramayana of the ramayana story of the ancient history of that time right and uh, it's very popular all across south asia but the the mahabharat does not seem to be that popular and neither does the bhagavad gita seem to be that popular but lord rama is very popular and his story is very popular so why is it so right so, uh, Indian culture first spread to Southeast Asia three, maybe three and a half thousand years before today. It spread via the ancient merchants of Kalinga, present-day Odisha. It's the people of Kalinga, merchants who traded with these far-away places that spread Indian culture to these places. So. I have a whole different uh, video about that episode of Indian history. The spread of culture to Southeast Asia from India via the merchants of ancient Kalinga. And it is still uh, celebrated even today via the festival of Boita Bandana. So these guys used to go in large ships. And even today that is commemorated in Odisha. And there is the Bali Yatra also and so on. Right. So it is from ancient Kalinga that Indian culture spread throughout Southeast Asia and later there was the conquest 
by the chola empire which happened about a thousand years before today so that was the second wave of inculturation but by the time the entirety of southeast asia was very much indianized and hinduized and later it was it became buddhist and so on that's all the same thing more or less so so we know that the ramayana is very popular i, I would imagine that the people of kalinga who went to southeast asia would have taken the ramayana with them and maybe at that time in kalinga in odisha maybe the mahabharat was not that popular or prevalent that's that is one possibility that i can think of i mean i have i don't know of any historian who has answered this question that's why it's such a good question you have asked a question that no historian is bothered to answer so i would i would conjecture that maybe in ancient kalinga 2 and 1/2 3000 years before today the ramayan must have been very popular and maybe not the mahabharat so much at that time for whatever reason and maybe that's why the ramayan became so popular all across southeast asia which is strange because if you look at the kalinga of 1000 years before today if you look at the history of kalinga odisha in the past 1000 years uh vaishnavism is a very big deal there right you had the great uh, the great kavi the great poet jaydev who composed the geeta govind which is a very very influential uh devotional uh, text full of poetry some of it even made, made it its way into the guru granth sahib in punjab and there is this ongoing tussle between the people of odisha and bengal about who really is who really owns jaydev mahakavi right that sort of thing so in more recent times odisha in odisha you, i would say the, the bhagavad gita was very popular the geeta govind as well and because of that the mahabharata as well but it looks like that in ancient times the Mah- the ramayan was way more popular and that's perhaps why that same popularity was transferred into southeast asia so that's what i can conjecture it's something that certainly deserves proper research so very good question okay vishal says why did the romans not conquer scotland and ireland that's an interesting question let's take a look at the map and let's explain where these places actually are so let us go to the maps let's go to the map where is the map here is a map so where is rome where is scotland where is ireland so as you can see this here is rome this is italy the capital city is rome which was the capital of the roman empire and if you look at scotland and ireland it's way far away to the north and the west from italy so this is the uk this island to the west of the uk is called ireland it is currently partitioned into two parts northern ireland and southern ireland the british have this policy of partitioning every country they hate so that's what they've done and to the north of the uk you have scotland you have edinburgh glasgow inverness invercargill aberdeen and so on and so forth so this is scotland so the question is why did the romans not conquer scotland and ireland uh so the roman conquest of the british isles begins with julius caesar julius caesar was looking to expand his influence and roman influence in europe 
So he crossed the Alps and he went into what is known as Gaul, which is present-day France and Switzerland. And he carried out all sort of all sorts of conquests, massacres, atrocities on the local people there, the Celtic peoples. And he is considered to be a great conqueror, but he was a brutal barbarian. Uh, the kind of things he did were terrible. Anyhow, he conquered all these places. And then he crossed the English Channel and he invaded the British Isles and he was able to conquer some part of it. And after Julius Caesar, the conquests continued and they went on further north. And then there was a wall that was built by, who was it? Was it Hadrian? Was it somebody else? I'm not sure who it was. But one of the Roman emperors built a wall between his dominion in present-day UK and Scotland. So I believe that it was a frontier too far. There was nothing to be gained by conquering that land. It was too cold, too far away. Not much grew there. The Romans essentially wanted nice, fertile lands for their soldiers, for their people to settle in. Places, lands where you had lots of resources, whether it is gold, whether it is something else, whether it is some metals, whether it is good farmland, whatever. So that's the kind of territory they wanted. Maybe Scotland was just too hilly. If you look at the the topology of Scotland, it's full of hills. Scotland is very hilly. Uh, they call it the Highlands of Scotland, right? So this is uh, the satellite imagery. It's, as you can see, it's a very, very hilly region. It's not fertile farmland. It's not a great place to, to live in. Unless you're a Scotsman or Scotswoman, then it's great for you. <laughs> and if you, unless you're a Highlander, and that sort of thing, and maybe Ireland was just too far away. They would have to cross the the Irish Sea and go all the way there. And what would they get there? More wild people, more more Celtic tribes, and so on. So maybe that's why it was just too far and, and, and too much trouble. So most likely that's why they did not go that far. They had, um, I mean, they had other other fish to fry. They had the whole of Europe to conquer. They conquered much of northern Africa. They, called, they conquered Hispania, Iberia, Spain, and uh, all the way to present-day Turkey, uh, the eastern Mediterranean, parts of Arabia as well, and so on. So they, they conquered a huge amount of territory. Maybe this, this particular part of the world was just too far and not maybe not worth the, the trouble. So most likely, that's why they did not go there, because it was just not worth the trouble. Right. Okay. Chiching says, were there any freedom fighters from the Far East region of India? Good question. So what she means is what is colloquially or popularly known as the Northeast region of India. So in case some of you don't know where is Northeast India or the Far East of India, it's here, east of the Siliguri Corridor, east of present-day Bangladesh. That is the far east of India or the northeast of India, you have Arunachal Pradesh, you have Sikkim is also part of it, you have uh, Darjeeling, you have Meghalaya, you have Manipur, Nagaland, Mizoram, and Tripura. Did I leave something out? I hope not. Assam, of course. So this is northeast India or the far east, far east region of India. And were there any freedom fighters from these places? Of course there were. But unfortunately, our wonderful great historians have not really bothered to record the great deeds of the great people of the far east of India. For instance, there were people who fought against the Turks. Uh, in Assam, you had this great warrior, this great commander, great general named Lachit Borpukan, 
who fought the Turkic armies of the great tyrant, the barbaric tyrant Aurangzeb, right, and defeated them on the uh, on the uh, uh, the battle of the Brahmaputra. Uh, so that is one great freedom fighter, Lachit Borpukan, a great general, great warrior, a great leader of Assam. That's one example I can tell you that is reasonably well known nowadays. Then, uh, then if you go further east, you come to Manipur, for instance. Uh, so you have the Anglo-Manipur War in 1891, I think, in which the, the British fought the kingdom of Manipur, defeated it and annexed it. So you had great warriors from Manipur, the the Yuvraj of Manipur, Bir Tikinderjit Singh and his great general, Thangal general, they fought the British, they fought heroically, they were of course defeated and they were both hanged by the British in the middle of the city of Imphal, right? There's this place where it happened, it is still it is still there, the place where this hanging happened. So the Manipuris fought the British, two of their great warriors, the, the great heroes were Bir Tikinderjit Singh and uh, Thangal General. And of course, from Nagaland, there was this lady called uh, Rani Gaidingliu, right? She fought against the British occupation of India in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, thereabouts. And she was given the title of Rani by the great Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji. So she was another very famous freedom fighter from Nagaland. And there must have been so many more, but unfortunately, I, I don't know of all of them. And also, we know that uh, when the Indian National Army of the great of the great son of India, Subhash Chandra Bose, when the INA invaded British India in order to liberate India, there were two great battles: the, the Battle of Imphal and the Battle of Kohima, which were part of the Second World War. And lots of people from this region, from present-day Manipur, from from present-day Nagaland, they helped the soldiers of the INA in a variety of ways, whether it's by giving them shelter, whether it's by giving them food, resources, whatever, they all tried to help out in the freedom struggle. So everybody from this region, it is known, was trying their best to help out the INA of the great Subhash Chandra Bose in its quest to liberate India from the foreign barbaric brutal occupier. So everybody from this region did what they could. They are all heroes. But unfortunately, their names are not recorded. There is a museum, the INA Museum in uh, in Moirang, in Manipur. Where is Moirang? Here it is, Moirang. So there is an INA Museum over here, somewhere here, where uh, you have photographs of those old days when the INA tried to liberate India from the British. So there were so many great freedom fighters from the far east of India, but very few of them have been recorded. I would say that there would still be records and memories of these great people. I hope that the esteemed historians from the universities in Manipur and Nagaland and Assam and Mizoram and Arunachal and Meghalaya and Tripura, etc. I would hope that these historians from these universities would do some actual research and publicize these stories of struggle and, and freedom and the fight for freedom. So I hope these things happen in the coming days, weeks, years, months. Yeah. But that's what I can say in brief about the freedom fighters from the Far East region of India. 
okay mr manu narayan says what is <laughs> okay what is the source of your information and claim that there is indian dna in the aborigin aboriginal people of australia what is the source of your information and claim that's what the question is so uh shall we find out together shall we do it let me share my screen what we will do is we will go to google the empty google page google uh search page and let's say indian dna in australian aborigines aborigines right so let's click on the first link what does it say the story untold the links between indian between australian aboriginal and indian tribes and there is a whole story here which tells you about what happened you have this research paper from nature nature aboriginal australian genomes reveal indian ancestry read this next let's go back out let's see this one genetic relationship between indian tribes and australian aboriginals this is another research paper from pubmed let's go to the next one bbc ancient migration genes link australia with india right this is a bbc article let's go further abc.net.au research shows ancient indian migration to australia once again you have all the details here let's go further ahead sciencedirect.com gene flow from the indian subcontinent to australia evidence from the y chromosome this is a research paper from current biology shall i go on and on and on and on dear sir in the time it took you to type this comment you could have found all the all the information on your own so i hope i have proven my claim that there is indian dna in the aborigines australian aboriginal people look it up do some research of your own learn how to search for information don't be dependent on one person the the reason i am answering all these questions is not to spoon feed you all information i am hoping that many of you will learn to search for information yourselves it's very easy to search for information every single fact that i'm i'm putting out i am giving you references because i am doing this extempore on the spot but i am hoping that you people my dear audience my dear viewers will take the initiative to double check to cross check what i am saying and look it up for yourselves every single thing i am saying every single fact i am putting out every single claim i am making its evidence is available in the public domain you just have to go and search for it please please learn how to search for information don't ask me such questions learn how to search for information learn how to seek out information if you have a question if you can type it into the youtube comments you can also type it into google and look for the information please do that okay ayan says what do you think about the telugu film industry is it the in- is the industry working for improving india's soft power and representing india's films and culture through films like bahubali kgf rrr pushpa magadira kanchana etc etc so out of all the films you have mentioned i have seen i have watched bahubali part 2 i liked it 
I mean, I, 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 I feel that some of these sequences, special effects and so on were a little bit over the top, but that's fine. I loved the fact that it presented Indian culture in, in a respect, in a respectful and good light. If you look at Bollywood, if you watch Bollywood movies, it constantly, repeatedly demeans and denigrates Indian culture. It makes fun of Indian culture all the time. If, if you watch a movie like Bahubali, you get a whole different uh, view, a whole different uh, approach that they are using. So they actually respect Indian culture. They are proud of their heritage. And they are they are taking the lead in showcasing Indian, India's culture, ancient culture. Right? So I haven't seen other movies like uh, KGF, RRR, and all those things. But from Bahubali, I was I was very happy to see Bahubali. And uh, if that trend is continuing, it's a very good thing. So it does look like the Telugu film industry, film industry is uh, is way more respectful of Indian culture, and it it portrays Indian culture way, way more accurately than something like Bollywood. So that is a very good thing. And if you do that, it's going to improve India's soft power <clears throat> because it's going to showcase Indian culture, the real Indian culture, genuine Indian culture in a positive way worldwide because India's entertainment history uh, industry has a global reach. So I think it's a very good thing. And I would like to commend the Telugu film industry for doing what Bollywood is not willing to do. So I'm really happy to see this. Mahendra Dan Charan, Charan says, Why was Chinggis Khan called a Khan? Isn't Khan a Muslim surname? What is the history of surnames of Muslims? Did they exist before Islamization of Central Asia? Look, I am not an expert in the history of surnames of the Muslim people and all. I can tell you about Chinggis Khan. The term Khan is not an Arabic term. It's not a, a Muslim term or an Islamic term. The word Khan is the Mongol word for leader. Khan means leader in the Mongol language and in also in various Turkic languages. Before the today, the Turkic peoples are almost all, most of them, I would say, especially in Turkey and other parts of Central Asia, most of them are Muslims. There are Turkic peoples who live in Siberia, in the Tungus region and all, who still follow Tengrism or various animistic uh, practices. But the majority of Turkic peoples overall are Muslims today. But before the Turks became Muslims, they were either Buddhists or Hindus. And before they became Buddhists or Hindus, they were practitioners of the ancient polytheistic culture called Tengrism. It's an ism because the West calls everything isms like Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism and so on. But Tengrism is named after the sky god Tengri, but it's a polytheistic belief system. It has the Earth Mother. I think she's called Umai, and there's a whole uh, pantheon of various other gods as well in the, the Tengrist belief system. Uh, so that's what it is, right? So the Turks and the Mongols, they were originally practitioners of Tengrism. The Mongols still practice Tengrism in conjunction with Buddhism, Hinduism. Mostly it's called Buddhism. So um, the word Khan is Mongolic and Turkic in origin. The ancestors of the Mongolic and Turkic peoples were the Hunnic peoples. So the Huns also called their leaders, kings, chieftains, as Khans. 
So Chinggis Khan was the great Khan, the greatest Khan of all time of the of the Mongol people. So that's why he was called Khan because he was the leader, the king of the Mongols. He was the Khan of Khans. He was a Khagan, right? And then what happened is that the Mongols conquered the Islamic world. Uh, Chinggis Khan's grandson Hulegu Khan destroyed the the penultimate caliphate. The Baghdad Caliphate, I don't remember which, which one it was. I think it was in the year 1258. If I am not mistaken, don't quote me on that. Somewhere around there, that Hulegu Khan besieged Baghdad, conquered Baghdad and destroyed Baghdad. And the Mongols nearly obliterated the Islamic world. Nearly. They came this close to that. But eventually they did not, did not happen. And what happened is that the Mongols started ruling the Islamic world. Eventually, they got intermixed with it. Many of the Mongol rulers or leaders or chieftains, eventually their descendants, they intermingled, they intermarried with the Turks and the Arabs and all that. They eventually themselves became Islamized. And this title, Khan, became a prestige title in the Islamic world. That's why so many Muslims today have the, have the surname or the title Khan. Because it came from the rulers of the Islamic world, the Mongols. So Khan is not a Muslim surname. It is a word that means leader or ruler or king in the Mongolian language. It came into the Islamic world with the Mongol conquest of the Islamic world. So that, I hope, explains why Chinggis Khan was known as Khan, even though he was not a Muslim in any way whatsoever. Monish says, attempt number 982. What is the exact origin place of the Hunnic people in the world map? And they are the descendants of which people? Okay, let's pinpoint it on the map. Let me share the map. And let's take a look at where the origin of the Hunnic people is. So this is a map of the of Eurasia. You know where India is. Let's go. If you are, let's say, in Manipur or Nagaland, and you go straight north, straight north, you will end up in Mongolia. Can you see that? Right due north of the far east of India is Mongolia. So this essentially, this entire region, Mongolia, uh, the Chinese-occupied part portion of Mongolia, which is Inner Mongolia, and this entire region north of present-day Mongolia, which is around this lake, Lake Baikal. All of this is the ancient homeland or heartland, you could say, of the ancient Hunnic people. The Chinese called these people the Xionyu. And they were known in the west as the Huns, the Huns. They were known in ancient India as the Hunas. Uh, during the Gupta, during the later phase of the Gupta era, the Gupta Empire era, there was wave after wave after wave of, of Hunnic invasions in northern India. And our great emperor Skandagupta repelled them all. After his demise, eventually the Huns were able to prevail. They invaded parts of India. They took over present-day Afghanistan, Gandhar, and uh, various parts of northern India. And they assimilated into the Indian population. They all became Hindus. Some of them remained atheists, people like Mihirakula, who was very evil. Uh, but most of them 
assimilated very harmoniously into india and one of the great uh, for instance uh, the great indian scientist brahmagupta mathematician and astronomer his patron was a hunnic origin king named vyagramukha from binmal in uh, in western india i'm not sure where it is but you can look it up right so and at the same time that the huns were the shweta hunas were trying to invade india at that very same time they were also invading the roman empire so they were a nomadic people who covered the entirety of eurasia but to come back to your question the place of origin of the hunnic people is present day mongolia and north of mongolia this overall region right who were the ancestors of the hunnic people well they would need deep genetic studies to find out so that's as far as i can go <laughs> about who the hunnic people were and where what was the place of origin that we know about all right kokleng says huge fan thank you so much sir Uh, when i want to ask you tripura is a st- small state from the northeast of india during the bangladesh liberation war a huge number of bengali refugees came to tripura never went back after the situation became normal now they have become a majority and the native people have become a minority in their very own land native people are asking the government of india for a solution but they don't pay much need- heed to it should the indian government not give first preference to its own state people first in terms of the cultural safety and security land and then think to bring policies like ca because it can do exodus to native people like living in assam and tripura specifically in their culture and identity after some 100 years if we are to talk about humanity saving your own indian is the first and foremost kind of humanity so what you are saying sir is absolutely true in 1971 there was this horrific genocide that the pakistanis carried out in bangladesh in present present day bangladesh mostly hindus between 1 to 5 million people were massacred the americans supported that and because of this there was a huge exodus of hindus into india mainly mainly into uh, what we now call northeast of india the far east of india many of them came into bengal and many of them came into tripura now if you look at the history of tripura it is the homeland of the tripuri people who are the original inhabitants of tripura going back i don't know how many centuries but the tripuri people are the original inhabitants the indigenous inhabitants of tripura after 1971 i don't know how many lakhs of refugees bengali hindu refugees came into tripura they settled down and today if you look at the the population of tripura it's majority bengali speaking nothing against the bengali people but the government of india should have definitely done something to safeguard the uh, the rights of the indigenous people of tripura today if you look at tripura you don't even know that the, the, the tripuri people exist there they have become a very small minority they used to have a great kingdom very in, in, very very beautiful and interesting culture the tripuri culture the tripuri kingdom tripura kingdom today you see no trace of that and there are very few tripuri people that you know of there was this this lady what's her name uh, she was a winner of one of the indian idol uh, seasons her name was saurabhi devvarman i think i have no idea what happened to her but yeah that is one example of a person that belongs to the 
original indigenous people of Tripura. So I agree that what happened in Tripura is terrible. The entire state was taken over by by refugees, and today they are essentially permanent inhabitants of that. So yeah, it's it's tragic, and I don't know what's the solution now. It's been so long, like forty, how many years has it been? Forty years, fifty years, something like that. It's been several decades. It's almost impossible to undo these demographic changes after so long. The government should have taken care of this issue at that time. Now what do you do? I really don't know. So this is the kind of situation you have in India. And it's something that's still going on in a variety of ways. And it's something this country needs to deal with in the long run if we don't want a disastrous demographic change because of, you know, demographic engineering, which is what happened in Tripura. So I agree that what happened needs to be recognized. Something needs to be done to preserve the cultural integrity of whatever remains of the original culture of Tripura. Something needs to be done about that. I think the government of Tripura should take care of it or the central government should take care of it. But something certainly needs to be done. A.J. Rana says, can you shed some light on the history of gunpowder in India? As I've heard that it was first invented in China. Is it true or a partial truth? So uh, I expect that if you go to Wikipedia, Wikipedia will tell you that gunpowder was invented in China. I think Wikipedia says that gunpowder was invented in China somewhere, somewhere around the 8th or 9th century, about 11 or 1200 years before today. That's what they claim. That's what Wikipedia says. Now, as I have said many times in the past, Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information, especially when it pertains to Indian history and Indian culture. So what is the truth? So let me uh, share my screen and share a certain text with you. Let's do it now. Let's do it right away. So this is by Dr. Gustav Oppert, who was a German Indologist, who says that gunpowder originated in ancient India. Let's read the first, the, the beginning paragraph. The invention of gunpowder has been ascribed to different individuals belonging to different countries. And as the question as to its authorship and antiquity is still an open one, we shall discuss the moot point and shall endeavor to prove that the oldest documents mentioning and describing gunpowder are found in India and written in Sanskrit, and that the use of gunpowder and its application to the discharge of missiles from projectile weapons was a well-known fact in ancient India, corroborating so far the opinion of those who have always pointed out India as the original seat of its invention. The question whether China received the knowledge of gunpowder or, or from India or vice versa, cannot be touched here, and so on. No Chinese work on this question can, with respect to antiquity, be compared with this Shukraniti. Shukraniti. So even if the Chinese should have independently invented gunpowder, the claim as to priority of invention will certainly remain with India. So the oldest known reference to gunpowder, to Agnichurna, is in the ancient Indian text called the Shukraniti, Shukraniti, which is ascribed to the ancient sage Shukracharya. What's interesting is that the Shukraniti is referenced in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. 
And even the Arthashastra in the beginning pays obedience to Shukracharya. So we we know for a fact that the Arthashastra is about two and a half thousand years old. And the Arthashastra references Shukracharya, who is the author of the Shukraniti. The Shukraniti has clear references to gunpowder and to projectile weapons that can fire missiles that are based, that have gunpowder as their as their fuel. So it tells you how ancient the knowledge of gunpowder was in India. So minimum at the very least two and a half or three thousand years before today and most likely way, way older than that. That's how old gunpowder, the knowledge of gunpowder was in India. Most likely the Chinese would have acquired this knowledge from India because there were ancient contacts, very extensive ancient contacts between India and China. And India was a net exporter of culture, a massive net exporter of culture, ideas, knowledge, wisdom to China. China absorbed all of that from India. So most likely the Chinese got this knowledge from India. So it is very clear. Despite what Wikipedia says, despite what all your eminent historians will say, it is very clear that gunpowder was first invented in India. The knowledge of gunpowder in India goes back at least, at the very least, two and a half thousand years before today. Okay, Regulus says, Hi, I am from Latin America, most specifically Mexico. I wanted to ask you, what are your views on strengthening ties between India and Latin America? Since the Chinese are already settling their, setting their influ- influence in places like Argentina, I think they would quickly start colonizing us with their companies and there isn't much we can do since innovation is unfortunately not something associated with Hispanic countries, including Spain. So in my opinion, it would become necessary to increase our ties with India. The problem is that India is usually overlooked when it comes to foreign relationships in basically most Latin American nations. And I also don't really know if this would convene India. So I want to know your views about this subject. A very interesting question. And what's even more interesting is that the foreign minister of Argentina is right now, as we speak, in India. And it's also very interesting that today he held a a presentation, a meeting, a conference, what it was, about the status of the Malvinas Islands. The Malvinas Islands are known in the English-speaking world as the Falkland Islands. They are currently occupied by the United Kingdom, even though they are right next to Argentina. And Argentina has a claim on these islands, a historic claim on the islands, but the British have currently captured and occupied these islands. So the foreign minister of Argentina on Indian soil gave a presentation about the status of the Malvinas Islands exactly in the same room and from the same spot where 48 hours before the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson had made an address. Isn't that very interesting? So it is an indicator of a certain strengthening of the relationship between India and Argentina coming closer of the two nations in a certain way. I I believe that the uh, chief guest in the recent Republic Day celebrations in India was, whether it is this one or the previous Republic Day, it was the uh, president of Brazil, Mr. Bolsonaro, 
so there again you see some kind of cooperation happening some kind of relationship building happening i'm not sure what the relationship between india and mexico is but it is now very clear that india is making a significant diplomatic outreach to latin america we may still it may still take some time for its results to be visible on the ground but there is an increasing focus in india towards latin america especially the larger countries like brazil and argentina i would also consider mexico to be a very important country in latin america and i'm sure that india will be focusing on mexico as well i think there is a great deal of um affinity in a variety of ways between india and mexico right so uh, and as you say the chinese have been making moves in latin america for at least the past 12 to 15 years and we know very well what sort of uh, checkbook diplomacy they employ they go and target the corrupt politicians in various countries and they have a significant uh, significant amount of funding that they can offer to these corrupt politicians which gives them access to all the resources of these countries they have been doing this in africa in sri lanka they have tried that with nepal they have tried it with various southeast asian countries they have tried it in various latin american countries and it will eventually if this continues result in the chinese colonization of these countries and the chinese will become masters of all the resources the raw materials natural resources that these countries can provide so that would not be beneficial for the people of the country and the economy of the country that will not be a good thing on the other hand india does not engage in such predatory practices india tries to engage in mutually beneficial relationships so i would say that india would be a much better partner for the countries of latin america and all relationships should be based on mutual benefit and mutual respect so i think india can offer a much better deal of course india does not have the deep pockets to give bribes the with the chinese can and that's why maybe some some in some countries the politicians or the leaders may not be so open to welcoming india at this stage i have said in the past all countries do not unfortunately pursue their national interest sometimes you have certain politicians who pursue their own personal interests and which is why countries suffer especially when they have these corrupt politicians who are ruling them i am not specifying any any country in particular but it has been known that in southern america in latin america there has been corruption and there have been corrupt leaders in the past so that's one factor that we have to be uh, cognizant of right so i would certainly say that india is going to focus more uh, more on latin america in the coming years the coming decade for sure and i hope to see closer cooperation and more indian investment into the in, in these countries and better relationships economic relationships uh diplomatic relationships even people to people relationships tourism tourism trade and all those things which will be really good for india as well as latin america so that's something that i am really hopeful about suraj says what would be the consequence if india had not developed nuclear weapons had india not developed nuclear weapons india would be at china's mercy today if india was not were not to be already broken by china the only nation in asia 
that can stand up to China and challenge China in a variety of ways, whether it's economically or culturally or militarily, is India. That's the only nation that the Chinese are worried about. That's, that's the only nation the Chinese are afraid of. And today the Chinese economy is five times, almost five times that of India. Five times that of India. And they have a much more massive military budget. They are modernizing their military, their navy and all. So they have a significant advantage over India. The only thing that is holding the Chinese back is the Indian nuclear deterrent. Right. So had India not developed nuclear weapons, the whole story would be different. The Chinese would have already taken over parts of India, quite possibly. The Pakistanis would have been much more emboldened. And even the relationship with other countries would have been very different. When you are a nuclear power, you have a certain stature, a certain status on the geopolitical chessboard. You are one of a small group of elite nations. And you have a certain amount of hard power that nobody can deny and nobody can trifle with. Even the relationship between India and America would have been very different had India not developed nuclear weapons and the ability to deliver them at large at long distances. So we don't quite know what India's uh, delivery mechanisms are. We have a variety of nuclear missiles with different ranges. We have certain nuclear missiles that can be classified as intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, like the Agni-5. There may be certain other missiles in our arsenal that may have even longer ranges than the Agni-5. These are matters that are not discussed in public. These are classified matters. But it gives you a certain leverage when even when dealing with a very, very powerful nation. So had India not developed nuclear weapons, India would not be in the position that it is today. India is today becoming a major pole, a major global pole in the geopolitical, multipolar geopolitical world order. Had India not developed nukes, India would not be that. India would not be at that position. So uh, India first tested nuclear uh, a nuclear device in 1974, I believe, and then promptly closed the program, shelved it, and left it to rot. It is only in 1998 that the second bunch of tests was done, and that's when India officially declared that it is now a proper nuclear power, whether you like it or not. And then the Americans imposed sanctions on India, all the Western European vassal states condemned India and imposed a variety of of uh, <clears throat> measures on India, but India overcame that over time. And in the long run, it really bolstered India's position globally from the perspective of hard power. So that is the consequence of having nuclear weapons. It gives you a significant deterrent against bullies and rogue nations like China. It also elevates your stature globally on the geopolitical chessboard. Shreyas says, is the war between Afghanistan and Pakistan possible in the current situation considering recent airstrikes of Pakistan on Afghan land? Well, Afghanistan and Pakistan have unfinished business. Uh, the Afghans claim a sizable portion of territory that is currently in the hands of Pakistan. So the Northwest Frontier Province is 
place or of Pakistan, which is currently in Pakistan, has a Pashtun majority population. And they wish to be part of Afghanistan. They are Pashtuns. They they consider their territory to, to be Pashtunistan. The Pakistani government isn't quite in, in 100% in control of this of this region. There is a reasonably open and porous border with Afghanistan. So there is a long-standing territorial dispute between Afghanistan and Pakistan. The Afghans claim Pakistani territory and the Pakistanis don't want to give it. Right? So that is a conflict that's been there for a very long time since, well, essentially since the 1820s and 1830s, since the days of the great Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So uh, that's a whole different backstory that I will not go into right now. So Afghanistan claims territory currently occupied by Pakistan, which is Pashtun majority. Now, in recent times, there have been multiple clashes between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Afghanistan is now ruled by the Taliban. The Americans handed handed over Pakistan to the handed over power in Afghanistan to the Taliban and terrorists who are now the uh, rulers of Afghanistan. And there have been clashes in recent times. Just a week or two ago, the Pakistani Air Force conducted airstrikes in official Afghan territory, killing a large number of innocent civilians, men, women, children. That's what the Pakistanis did because they can. So the question is, is a war between these two nations possible? See, Afghanistan, which is essentially the Taliban, is in no position to fight a conventional war with Pakistan. The Pakistani army is a professional army. It's a well-trained army. It can certainly overwhelm Afghanistan anytime it likes. It is not quite as professional and as well-trained as the Indian army. It is no match for the Indian army. But it, it, it can certainly take care of Afghanistan. A bunch of Taliban fighters, are, uh, they, they are nothing compared to the Pakistani army, especially the kind of uh, equipment the Pakistanis have. They have tanks, they have a proper air force with F-16s and various Chinese fighter planes and so on. So they, they can... So the Taliban doesn't stand a chance in a conventional war with Pakistan. And the Pakistanis, of course, have nukes, which are for India, not for Afghanistan. Now, what the Taliban can do is to wage a non-conventional war with the Pakistanis, which means their typical tactics of insurgency, right? Freedom fighting insurgency, whatever you want to call it. When it comes to Pakistan, we'll call it that. So that's what the Taliban can do. They have a significant amount of support in the northwest frontier province. Lots of Pashtuns live there. Lots of Pashtuns live in Karachi and other parts of Pakistan. So there is always a potential of the Taliban using that, of the Afghans using that advantage against Pakistan. So I don't see a full-fledged war erupting between Pakistan and Afghanistan. But I don't see the relationship being a normal relationship, being a stable relationship, being a cordial or friendly relationship. People view the Pakistanis as essentially owning Afghanistan, which is not quite the case. The Taliban are Afghan nationalists and they do not like being under the boots of the ISI, the Pakistani ISI. So it's a complex situation, but I expect the thing, the, the relationship to deteriorate further in the coming months and years 
it's not going to be a fun time for pakistan but i don't see a full fledged war also happening it may be a low intensity conflict for the time being kevin says what's the historical significance of the city baruch in gujarat i had recently come to know through wikipedia that my city baruch is the second oldest indian city having continuous habitation let's take a look at the city of baruch where exactly is it let me go to the map and let's see where baruch is so baruch uh, like kevin says is in western india in the state of gujarat so it is somewhere north there it there it is the city of baruch which is a city on the narmada river the great river narmada one of the great rivers of india now baruch was uh, historically a port city as you can see it's quite close close to the sea there's a nice natural harbor here uh, and it's a very old city so the original name of the city of baruch was brigukach it's a sanskrit name and uh, it is believed that the great rishi brigu he came to this place sitting on a tortoise on a, on a tortoise so the city uh, so the word for tortoise in sanskrit is kach which is where the hindi name kachua comes from the hindi word kachua comes from so the combination of the words brigu and kach became brigu kach and that is the name that is the original sanskrit name of this city it is uh, supposed to be very old and uh, so i don't know exactly what its antiquity is i'm not sure if a proper archaeological uh, work has been done here to establish the oldest date of inhabitation but it was certainly part of the territory of the ancient saraswati sindhu civilization a phase of our civilization the whole of gujarat saurashtra kutch and much of the northwest northern and western region of india was part of this extensive uh, urbanized phase of our civilization including brigukach or baruch so it may it must be really really old now uh, it was the capital of the indo-scythian king nahapana so nahapana lived about 2000 years before today he is mentioned in the ancient greek text the periplus of the erythrean sea so they have a greek name barzigara or something like that for the city baruch and they named this king nambanus or nahapana who was a indo-scythian king a very good king very powerful king who did lots of cultural works like like for in, for instance there is this uh, cave there are these caves in the city of mumbai the kaneri caves krishnagiri caves they were constructed on the orders of nahapana and uh, various other things so the his capital was the city of baruch and various other subsequent indo indo scythian kings mahakshatrapas like rudra simha and rudradaman also ruled from this region and even during the rajput era the solanki era etc baruch was a major city and then of course you had the the turkic invasion of gujarat and then i think this city went into kind of decline today baruch i think is not a very big city as you can see it's not it's not a very large city it's a medium to small sized town but it has a great glorious past and hopefully a great future as well so that's what i can say in brief about the city of baruch
Okay, Dungar Singh Chauhan says, please, please, please answer this time. Why isn't there a clear acceptance that rebirth exists? Recently, there was a four-year-old girl in Rajasamand, Rajasthan, who clearly spoke facts about her past life. India is full of such unambiguous cases of rebirth. Then what else does science need? To accept the fact that rebirth exists when there are so many evidences in front of us. So let's understand what is evidence. In court, if somebody says, I saw this, then that is admissible evidence as a witness. So that is legally admissible evidence. That doesn't mean it's scientific evidence. Scientific evidence has to be unambiguous and incontrovertible. So what is so let's understand what rebirth is. Rebirth is tied to the concept of karma. In the Abrahamic worldview, you have one life. When you die, your soul goes into some place. And then there is some guy who will either allow you to go to heaven or dump you into hell. So that is the Abrahamic concept in, in a very brief nutshell. In the Dharmic worldview, the soul, the Atma, is immortal. And uh, <clears throat> when a person dies, they accumulate all the uh, fruits of their actions, good actions, bad actions, that, which is called karma. And karma is something, it's a conserved quantity. It is, it's like there's a law of conservation of karma. The fruits of your actions, they are conserved bit over lifetime. So your soul is immortal. After you die, your soul goes to eventually another body. You are reborn and the karma which you had accumulated in your past lifetime, it continues into the new lifetime. So that is the concept of karma and there is the concept of rebirth. So to clearly establish the linkage between person A who died and person B who was born and claims to be a reincarnation of person A, one would need to establish one-to-one -one correspondence of the soul. The, the soul that was in person A who died is the soul, the, the same soul that has now migrated to person B. That would be the unambiguous proof of the existence of rebirth. Now, can we observe the soul? Can we measure the soul? Unfortunately, we cannot. And therefore, it is not scientific evidence. That is how science works. A million people can make claims that I have seen a ghost or I have been reborn or I have had a conversation with God. Those are non-provable scientifically because you cannot replicate that phenomenon in a measurable way. You cannot photograph it. You cannot videograph it. You cannot measure it. That is simply how science works. You cannot mix religion spirituality and science. These are different domains or philosophy and science. Science has certain criteria which cannot be mixed up with the criteria that philosophy has or spirituality has or religion has. Right? So, because of that, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with what Dungar Singh Tohan is saying. There are so many cases that seem extraordinarily convincing. I mean, how can a four-year-old kid remember things a four-year-old kid who has never been to a certain place say exactly what is there about the life of a certain person. It's it's incredible. So it is incredible. It's it's a, like it's very convincing, isn't it? And yet you cannot prove it scientifically. 
so it's so when it comes to spirituality when it comes to religion or when it, when it comes to philosophy it's about belief you don't need proof if you believe it if you have the belief you why do you need proof so we cannot bring this into the realm of science we have to also understand that there are things that science has limitations science is unfortunately very imperfect it's because of the limitations of our intellect we humans are actually very unintelligent our intelligence has very 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 hard limits so there are so many things that we don't understand so many things that science doesn't explain cannot explain as of today there are so many things that science is unable to explain today 95% of the universe is dark science has no idea what it is we are able to understand only a fraction of 5 or 4% of the universe that too very very imperfectly so there is a whole lot that science cannot explain maybe in the future when humans become more intelligent we may be able to bring certain other things into the realm of realm of science but as of today rebirth karma all of these things cannot be proven or disproven scientifically and therefore they cannot come into the realm of science but that doesn't prevent anybody from believing them some cases are are incredibly <laughs> convincing aren't they i agree but yet you cannot say but so let's not try to prove it with science if you believe it believe it that's all that matters what to you what you believe matters whether it is scientific or unscientific is not important what matters is what you believe so it's up to you it's up to every individual to decide to choose what you believe or don't not believe and that's all that matters eventually alpha says shouldn't basic education and healthcare be free for the citizens in my opinion in any civilized society education healthcare and justice should be completely free for everybody for all citizens education healthcare and justice these three things should be completely free and completely accessible to all citizens no matter what their age is no matter what their gender is no matter what their social class or wealth is doesn't matter everybody should get the same education should have the same access to the same education the same high quality healthcare and speedy justice that is the hallmark of a civilized society do you know in after 1947 in certain princely states of india you still had free education and free healthcare if you fell sick if you had some if you had some medical issue you would be given free treatment high quality treatment in a hospital that was paid for by the local king or whatever then when the princely states were abolished the government of india took away all these rights and privileges from the citizens and today you have the commercialization of healthcare which i in my opinion is barbaric you should not have to pay for healthcare in a civilized society your access to healthcare should not depend on how much money you have everybody should have access to good healthcare everybody pays taxes yeah i know that only a small percentage of indians pays income tax but everybody pays gst any good that you buy any goods you buy a kilo of tomatoes there is gst on that that is going into the coffers of the government you buy any service there is gst on that 
you go to a restaurant there is gst on that anything that you purchase there is gst applied on that so every citizen of india is paying taxes so today india is unfortunately still a broken country india is a country that is struggling to rise it will rise in the next 10 20 years india will i will consider india to be a civilized country a proper civilization again only when it is able to provide high quality free education free healthcare and speedy justice to all of its citizens irrespective of anything so yes i agree Meghnad says it has been known that an Indian, the great Bodhidharma, introduced martial arts into China and various other countries in Eastern Asia, and these countries were able to preserve these martial arts and their culture till date. Why did we Indians fail to preserve these things? Good question. Let me offer a different perspective. Today is. the 24th of april 2022 a day or two ago somewhere i think in rajasthan a couple of ancient temples were demolished by the government these these temples were like 2 or 300 years old heritage temples ancient temples they were destroyed by the government state government of that place even today you indians my dear friends us we indians even today we are unable to preserve our heritage that is your answer we have for the past 1000 years been ruled by people who have wanted to destroy our heritage to destroy our culture the millennium of humiliation and such people still exist today such governments still exist today they are still actively working to destroy our culture our heritage and our civilization that is your answer that is why we were unable to preserve our martial arts we are still unable to save our temples whatever is left of them and we are still not allowed to administer our temples got the answer okay <laughs> Abhishek says how to become friends with girls <laughs> I'm 20 years old I have never had a female friend in my whole life Okay Abhishek Okay forget about a girl or a boy how do you make friends It's very simple you will not make friends unless you go and talk to people unless you go and speak with people So that's the first thing if you want to have female friends you have to first go and speak to females and then if if two people have some things in common some interest in common or some something in common then a friendship may may be possible so you will not have a female friend if you never go and speak to females so that's the first thing go and speak to to everybody males females everyone right so that's the first thing and secondly be who you are be open be 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 yourself don't try to pretend don't pretend to be something you are not don't try to impress anyone if you if you are worried about impressing people you're going to look fake and you will not look authentic just be who you are and don't care about what people think go and talk to people and hopefully you will have friends so that's what i can say in very brief all the best sir <laughs> 
Okay, let's take one more question for today. Animish says, what are your tips on staying away from or not getting bothered by petty fights like road rage, street brawls, aggressive arguments, social media quarrels, etc.? How are you able to exhibit a calm and composed presence every time, even when you get blasted with some mean and disrespectful comments? Hmm. Me, calm and composed. You see, the me you see here is just one small aspect of who I am. I'm not always calm and composed. Actually, I am known to have somewhat of a temper. So, see, when you see a person on the media, they are in a controlled environment. And they want to put the best foot forward. So what you see is not the entirety of the person. It is just one, the public aspect of the person. So I'm not always calm and composed. I see, I mean, I see all kinds of comments every single day. Sometimes I want to, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, so I'm not always calm and composed, but overall you should try and cultivate a peaceful attitude, try and meditate or something. So my tips for staying away from petty fights and, and quarrels and all that and being calm and composed all the time. Firstly, it's not possible to always be calm and composed. Sometimes it's okay to not be calm and composed. The second thing is have a bigger objective. Have a big goal that you're working towards. Something like a five-year goal or a 10-year goal and you are working every day towards that Every day you're making some progress towards that. If you have a big objective, something that is really, really important to you, and something that will take a lot of work over a period of years, then these small things will not bother you. You will find these things unimportant. You will try to stay away from that because you have a much bigger project to work on. So the people who are who are very easy to, to rile the people who are easy to distract are the people who have no big 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 objective in their life people who are aimless they will get into fights all the time people who don't have a big objective a big goal they will get into fights they will have street brawls or arguments or whatever it is somebody who has a great mission will be focused on the mission and they will not have the time to get into fights so that's what i would say find whatever it is that motivates you find a big mission for yourself and pursue that. If you do that, then you will find yourself staying calm, staying focused and not getting into pointless arguments and all that. So that's what I can say in brief, but even if you have something, it, it's not always possible to stay calm all the time. All right. Okay. How about a few live comments, live questions? Do you have any live questions? Let me take a few, maybe two, three. I've not done that for a while. Okay, let's see if there are any questions. Any questions from the live chat? Do we have something? Let me look, let me look, let me look. Are tanks obsolete in modern warfare with the development of anti-tank systems as we can see in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? That's an interesting question. I think lots of things are slowly becoming obsolete in modern warfare. Tanks they are very like 
I spoke about warships, right? Surface warships, slow-moving, large warships, very visible, very enticing targets, very easy to kill with missiles and torpedoes and all that. Similarly, tanks also are kind of like that. Tanks were first invented a hundred years ago. Tanks were used in, I believe, World War One, World War Two, and they have been progressively improved upon. You have all kinds of new technologies in tanks, like uh, reactive armor and such things. But yeah, they are becoming more and more easy to kill tanks. So I think that tanks may be going the way of the dodo, becoming more more and more obsolete, especially when you have things like loitering munitions and uh, kamikaze drones, anti-tank missiles that are very cheap. So yeah, it's possibly going in the direction. It's possibly becoming going to become obsolete sooner rather than later. Okay, let us see. Is there anything else? Any other interesting questions? Hi, 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 hi. Are the Rajputs Aryans? Every Bharatiya is an Arya. All Indians are Aryans. The term Arya, Ar, the English or Western word Aryan, originates from the Sanskrit Arya which means noble or civilized. And the original civilization is India, which means all Indians are Aryans, whether you are tall or short, you are male or female, whether you are black or white or green or pink or whatever, you are all Aryans. Whether you are Rajput or Maratha or Sikh or Assamese or Manipuri or Telugu or Tulu or Sinhalese or Tamil or whatever, you are all Aryans. You are all Arya. That's all it is. Okay, let's take one more question. As you can see, it's not always possible to be very calm and composed. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> is there anything else? What is your favorite food? I'm dying to know this. My favorite food. I like all kinds of food. Right now, I don't mind eating a nice vegetable salad with some fried paneer. How about that? What kind of entertainment do you have? I mean, genres. I'm a big fan of watching movies, watching series. Nowadays, I don't find the time. I enjoy watching podcasts, but I haven't seen a full-fledged podcast in like a year now but yeah i am a big fan of entertainment i'm a big fan of watching movies especially in the big cinema halls if i would have the time i don't mind watching two or three movies in a cinema hall every week so yeah i like that i like music as well do you watch anime these days i haven't i don't watch anime at all but when i was a kid i used to love watching anime right um Your thoughts on cricket getting into Olympics 2028? And do you think Kabaddi will ever be an Olympic sport? I think cricket is too extended of a game to, to make it to the Olympics. I mean, even the short version of cricket takes about three hours, right? A 2020 match. So maybe it's not the best fit for the Olympic Games. Kabaddi, I hope it becomes an Olympic sport. I'm a big fan of Kabaddi. 
it's a very physical sport it's a contact sport it's a it's a game of skills i mean there are all kinds of skills involved in kabaddi there are i mean thin light players have a role to play in kabaddi big bulky massive guys like me have a role to play in kabaddi so it's it's a it's a great game i hope kabaddi becomes an olympic sport it's a it's a game that can catch on in the entire world if it is marketed right okay is there anything else that i should take up deepam goswami what tell us something about bengali brahmins eating mutton chicken let them eat i say i mean it's a personal choice what are bengalis racially bengalis my dear friends are indians racially okay let me see will india be the next superpower india is currently getting into pole position as one of the major poles in a multipolar world so next superpower i am not quite sure which will be the next superpower uh currently the us is the only superpower china wants to displace the us and become the superpower i hope that doesn't happen because china doesn't have good intentions the chinese communist party is not a force of good in the world so i hope that india rises to the occasion and becomes the next superpower i hope so but it is foolhardy to make predictions especially of something that will happen that may happen in the next 20 30 years 20 30 years down the line why are electric scooters catching fire well i have not heard of such news but electric scooters and all electric vehicles uh they run on these battery packs and the battery packs have a certain have a certain chemistry they are essentially made of lithium lithium ion cells they are and uh, so there has been there have been reports of various electric cars occasionally catching fire of various cell phones cell phone battery packs catching fire sometimes and the same technology exists in electric scooters so maybe that's the reason why it may be happening so that's what i can offer you about this was maharana pratap really 7.4 feet tall or it's just a myth well there is no way of corroborating him because see there's no evidence of how tall he was there are accounts that he was a very tall strong man shurveer that sort of thing he was clearly a very great warrior a very brave man a very great ruler so when somebody is that brave as a person and that great as a ruler typically you tie, you tend to see them as a very tall person so maybe that's the reason the the truth is it doesn't matter how tall he was what matters is how great he was he stood alone against the might of the turks and he did not allow them to win he fought his entire life that is that is his great achievement okay where is the virus now it's lost somewhere between russia and ukraine it's not that important anymore because there are bigger fish to fry for the for the west when the time is right they will bring it out of the closet i expect 
Okay, what else? Is Kumari Kandan, Kumari Kandan real? There is no evidence of it being real. Uh, we now have a very good idea of what the seafloor looks like and there is no lost continent anywhere. So unfortunately, it looks like this is either a myth or, or we still don't have an explanation. But from the evidence that we have, which is very clear and unambiguous evidence, there is no lost continent to the south of India. So from that evidence, it doesn't seem to be real. Okay, okay, okay. Do we have anything else? Okay, I guess we're done for today. So, everybody, thank you so much for all your questions. Great fun as always. And I will see you in the next episode, which is going to be the first triple-digit episode of Ask Abhijit. Until then, take care. Thank you to everybody who watches. Thank you to everybody who supports this channel in whichever way, in a variety of ways. Thank you to all of you. Take care. I will see you in the next episode. Bye.